Good morning, church. If you'll please turn in your Bibles to today's scripture, you'll find it John 19, 1 through 16. When Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Josh, thanks for being with us this morning, and during the Bible study hour, we talked to Josh about church planting with a couple of our guys in the Bonhoeffer house, and how important it is for us to multiply as churches, that denominations don't plant churches, churches plant churches, and so we want to keep being involved in uh, training and sending the next generation of pastors, so thanks for driving over this side of the state and hanging with us this morning, and uh, and for listening to this twice. You don't have to do that, but he, he's going to do it. So, um, yeah. And we're looking forward to being part of the SBCV uh, annual homecoming today and tomorrow downtown. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're in John chapter 19. We just read the text together. We want to encourage you to follow along in the Bible with us. I want to drop right into the deep end in your life for just to, like to start. So I want to give you a heads up that, that that's where we're doing <laughs> So I'm going to ask you a personal question, um, and hopefully you can drop your guard just a little bit. When was the last time you felt shame, like somebody sent, sent shame your way, somebody either intentionally or unintentionally, um, and I say that because so many of us do this without even realizing what we're doing, sent shame toward you. Can you remember that? Maybe it's been pretty recent for some of you. Maybe a long time ago for others. 
there's a good kind of shame that can come through a God-given conscience and through, through, through a God-given conscience that everybody has or through the spirit of God's conviction. So I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't good kinds of shame. There, there are good kinds of shame, I think, in my understanding, but I'm not talking about that today. Um, what I want to talk about is, is bad kinds of shame. And I want to ask you to think about the last time that you felt shame, maybe even from someone you trusted, someone you thought you could trust, or someone you're in a relationship with, somebody that you do trust and you're in relationship with. Um, Shame is that overwhelming sense that you're unacceptable because of something you did or did not do. You feel exposed and you feel humiliated. It's different than guilt. Shame is different than guilt. When you do something obviously wrong, you feel guilty and you should, but that's, that's not how shame works. Um, shame is more relational than it is moral. Shame is more something that is sensed and felt than it is pronounced. The shaming that you and I most often traffic in is anything but healthy. The shaming you and I most often give and the shame we often receive is not healthy. I would say that that's in the 90% range, maybe even in the 95% range. It's kind of like righteous indignation. Lots of people think they have righteous indignation. They really don't. It's sinfully righteous indignation. God has righteous indignation. So shame is a lot like that. The thing that makes shame so powerful is that it's a unique combination of two things. You fall, you fall, you stumble, you trip, either literally or metaphorically in life, and people are there to see it. That's the second part. You fall and it's public. You're exposed and people know it and you feel that. Let me give you some examples. There's minor shame, there's relational shame, and there's debilitating shame. When I'm thinking of minor shame, I'm thinking about occasional, incidental, minor shame. Like, I'm daydreaming at the traffic light, thinking about my sermon, and the light turns green, and a full second and a half has passed. And what do I hear? Right? I don't just hear a, "Uh uh-uh, hey, just a friendly reminder. No, I hear, "Uh uh-uh, get the, right? That's, that was designed to shame me. It was designed to let this conversation go way beyond two cars. That's minor shame. Hopefully you get over that in a few seconds, maybe a minute. Yeah, don't send it back, (laughs) which is what you want to do in your heart. That's minor shame. Relational shame is more habitual. It's more habituated into our lives. It's the kind of thing that husbands and wives learn to do with each other over time to give each other the silent treatment when they're disappointed in each other. Or it's the kind of thing that a dad would do if he withholds his affection from a child because they disappointed or disobeyed or disrupted his kingdom. You know, there's probably more of this going on in your life than you realize. Like, this is relational, habituated shame. It can come in all sorts of ways where, where we're treating each other in a particular way to expose, embarrass, or humiliate one another, even if it's subtle. 
There's minor shame, there's relational shame. I, I, the third category I just want to briefly mention in, in this intro here, just to get you feeling some, sh- feeling some shame. <laughs> That's good. You came to church so I could help you feel shame. That's beautifully, beautifully turned phrase. Um, the third category is debilitating shame. This is life-altering shame. This is the kind of shame that, that my sister felt a decade ago when she found out that her husband was cheating on her. And 10 years ago, when I was on my way up here on a Sunday morning to, to preach during the interim, I vividly remember it, really like it was a week ago, uh, her telling me what happened and how she started to just, I mean, I could just, she wasn't using the word shame, but that's what I was hearing coming through the phone, that he cheated on me, and not only is that going to be public, but it's going to be public that we're divorced, and I'm going to walk around with a big D, a scarlet D, a scarlet letter on my forehead for a long time. That's debilitating shame. It's the kind of shame that people say, man, I, they start, people have, start having thoughts, I don't, I don't want to live through this. I'll take my life. It's that kind of debilitating shame that, that people, so many people feel. Uh, or a fellow that I know about who did something illegal, really stupid at work, and got fired, and for the rest of his vocational life will be known as the man who got fired from that job. He'll wear an F on his forehead, unless somebody restores that, unless someone can restore that. Or maybe another example would be a high school girl who is struggling with her sexual identity, maybe same-sex attraction, and she's not sure about it. She's not sure whether it's right or wrong or what, and she can't talk to anybody about it because the people she tries to talk to about it immediately send shame her way. Shame's all over the place. Look, when you start watching for this, you're going to see that shame is everywhere. It, is, it, is, it, is, it takes a thousand different faces, and once you have eyes to see it, you'll see it. But it was not always that way. This is, this, is, this is the thing. It was not always that way. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, lived in a place where there was no shame. They lived in a place where there was no shame, where there was no humiliation, there was no regret. It was only through the rebellion of Satan and Adam and Eve's disobedience. This is the Christian worldview. This is what we believe the Christian worldview teaches, that it was only through the rebellion of Satan and Adam and Eve's willing, willing disobedience that sin and shame entered the world. And they, tragically, brought shame on themselves and the entire human family. So she took the fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of, they were both open, uh, Genesis chapter 3, and then the eyes of both of them were open, and they sensed this nakedness and shame. And so they sewed coverings for themselves. From that moment on, shame and humiliation have stained us. But here's the good news. This is why you came to church. Jesus, fast forward, Jesus comes to cover our shame. So if the first Adam, if the first Adam hid in his nakedness, Jesus would hang. If he hid, Jesus would hang in his naked and innocent state on our behalf. Adam, naked and guilty, Jesus naked and innocent for a purpose. Adam brought shame on us. 
the last Adam, Jesus, turns shame back on itself. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about how in Adam we are exposed, but in Christ we are covered. Christ came to cover our shame. So in, in today's passage, I, what I want you to see in, in John 19 is that John purposefully shows us that Jesus was mocked and shamed and utterly humiliated. And at this point in the storyline, like we're in, we are in the throes of, of the passion and suffering of Christ. And the church, historically, theologically, traditionally, the church has said that's a big deal. This is not just a, a thing that happened the day before the, or the day of the crucifixion. Like what's happening is important to see. It's important to see the, sh the shame and humiliation of Jesus Christ as he moves toward the cross. There's, there's something happening in the shame and humiliation of Jesus for us. So it's not just an incidental part of the narrative. In John's gospel, I think John is trying to point out for us, and, and I feel it, I've been reading it the last couple of weeks, it feels especially palpable to me as I read it, that there's this cold, you can hear it and see it from the Jews and from Pilate, that there's this cold, hateful shaming of Jesus. And we want to ask why. Like, what's happening there? So here are three things I want to show you this morning. I want to show you, first of all, the shame and humiliation of Jesus. Secondly, Jesus overcame that shame on the cross. He overcame our shame. He overcame your shame on the cross. And third, we can learn to cover the shame of others. Let's think about those three. Number one, the shame and humiliation of Jesus. I think it's especially uh, clear in verses 1 through 5, but you also see it later in verse 10 and in verse 14. Let's dial in on verses 1 through 5 and just walk through the passage with me. Walk through the passage and, and think about what's happening big picture in terms of shame and humiliation and what's happening to, to this man named Jesus. Verse 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. So to be beaten by someone is shameful enough. It's humiliating enough to be beaten. For somebody to beat another person, that, that's humiliating enough. But here it says that, that they flogged him. They, they, they beat him with an instrument. They beat him with a whip. They, 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 several of them were sort of ganging up on him and beating him. Uh, probably it's the case that there are two scourgings. Now, if you're thinking about the Gospels and you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you might recall that, that in, in, those, in those Gospels, what happens is the scourging is on the other side of the death sentence. John seems to be talking about a scourging that happens prior to the death sentence here. So there may be two scourgings. In fact, we think there are two scourgings. There's this initial sort of not-so-hard punishment, because the Romans were known to have, have sort of a, a, a level one scourging, level two, level three. Level three, they would beat you really to death. Level one was just sort of a, a reminder, we're in charge, and it, it would beat you up good, and then they would let you go. And probably that's what's happening here, is there's a, an effort to appease the Jews and to teach Jesus a lesson, and, and this scourging, this first one, would be a just, you know, not so bad beating, and he could walk away from it. And Pilate, you get the sense in the passage, that's what Pilate wants to happen. He's like, look, I, I don't find any fault in this man. Let him go. He, we've beaten him. Let's, let him. let's just let him go. Let's move on. <laughs> Uh, but the Jews won't have it that way. 
So this is the beginning of the humiliation process for Jesus. It's dehumanizing to be beaten. The second thing they do is they they take a crown of thorns. Look at verse 2. And so this would be probably, scholars think, most likely it's from the the kind of palm tree, it's like a date palm tree that has really long thorns at the base of the palm fronds. So so the palm fronds are really long on these trees and they might go, you know, 15, 20 feet out. But at the base, toward the trunk of the tree, there aren't the the branches and the the fronds there, uh, or there aren't the leaves rather, but back toward the end where it connects to the tree, there are these really long spikes. So these are six, 10, 12 inches long, really long, thin spikes, not tiny little uh, thorns you would feel on the edge of a, a rose bush leaf, but really long, sharp thorns toward the end of the palm frond. And they would basically hear what they've done is they've just twisted them into a crown of thorns and, uh, and, 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 and to make him a mock crown and they put it on top of his head and they press it down. They don't just lay it on top of his head. These are soldiers who are abusing him. So they press it down on top of his head and then they start slapping him around. They put a purple robe on him. He's got a robe, he's got a crown and he's gonna go carry his scepter. He's gonna carry a cross. He's going to be a king. We're going to mock him. And they spit on him and they slap him around and they beat him up. What's happening to Jesus? He's being humiliated. He's entering the human condition in the most full possible way. Like He's entering the brokenness of humanity in the fullest, most possible way. He is submitting to the humiliation that, that the world and and Pilate and the Jews put on him. And then verse 5, I think as I read it, verse 5 is kind of like, so if there's two parts to this first 16 verses, verse 5 is sort of the high water mark, the climax of, the, of part 1. So there's, if you think of 16 verses in two parts, part 1 has a has a dramatic moment in it, and it's right here. Pilate brings him back out, because this is happening in the, in the headquarters. He brings him back outside and says, okay, behold, this is the line, verse five, behold the man, the famous line, right? Behold the man. What's Pilate doing? He's pronouncing the silliness you, this is a threat to the, this, you think he's a threat to, he's a pathetic, bleeding, beaten figure. You think he's a threat to Caesar's kingdom? This is the, this is the one you think is going to start a political revolution? Behold the man who you think is this big time trouble, he's going to be a king, he's going to take over, thing. you know, behold the man. Pilate's ready to be done with this. He, he doesn't feel threatened by Jesus, except there is this mysterious line. Pilate was growing increasingly afraid. Isn't that interesting? So Pilate says, behold the man. And basically he means to say, look, he's not going to threaten us. He's not going to threaten us. Let's just be done with it. But that's not what the Jews want. They want him crucified. They want him crucified because he's a blasphemer and it finally comes out in this part of the chapter where he's been claiming to be the son of God and nobody in our religion is allowed to claim to be the son of God except the Messiah and he's not the Messiah. We're thinking about a different kind of Messiah. 
So that's what Pilate means when he says, behold the man. But that's not what John has in mind, I don't think. That's just sort of the first layer for John. What John's really after is for you to see Jesus as the quintessential, ultimate, true human being. We learn this from chapter one of John's gospel all the way through the whole book. When John starts talking about the man, he's like the word made flesh. He's dwell, he came to dwell among us. God has come to dwell among us. He's, he's, he's the word made flesh. Jesus of Nazareth is a man who represents, in fact, is God. It's mind-blowing. And, and then on and on in chapter 1, he talks about he's the man on who the Spirit of God is going to descend. He's the Son of Man. This is all before you get out of chapter 1. So John has set up this framework in chapter 1 so as to say the true human being, the true humanity, he's here, he's arrived. Now watch, and, and you walk through John's gospel, and he keeps building, and he keeps moving, and you keep seeing who Jesus is as the true, ultimate, perfect human being, right? Now... When Pilate stands him in front of everybody, John has to have in his mind in the background, oh, this is the glorious moment of Jesus. This is a glorious moment. The cross, for John, the cross is glorious. For John, the cross is glorious. Jesus is the ideal of all mankind, and while everyone else is blind to it, behold the man for John is a statement about what the Son of God, who is the Son of Man, came to do. He came to identify with us in his very disgrace, brutalization, and shame. He came to be shamed for us. That's what John wants you to catch from this moment, that there is a glory at work. We beheld his glory, right? How? Because there's a glory in the work that's happening on the cross in the midst of this shame and brutalization and all, all, the, all the humiliating uh, stuff that's going on. God is doing something. That's what John wants us to see. All right, so that brings us to the, to the second point. What did Jesus do? He did something. He overcame our shame on the cross. So his experience... Uh, his experience of shame was not an accident. This is what Christianity teaches. Jesus' experience of shame was not an accident. It was not a surprise to him or a surprise to God. I mean, he, was betrayed, he was betrayed with a traitor's kiss. It's not a surprise to Jesus. And you're going to notice in our narrative that the cross is now clearly in view. So it's not in any way a stretch for us to say that, that Jesus, that John the Apostle wants us to see the cross is looming large. Jesus knows the cross is looming large. Why do each of the apostles call so much attention to this? I mean, you see it in Romans, you see it in First and Second Peter, you see it in each of the Gospels. Why is the humiliation of the Son of God so pronounced? What is God doing through Jesus' shame and disgrace at the cross? It's not just incidental, and it's not accidental. What's, what is happening here? The clues in verses 9, 10, and 11. Drop down into verse 9. Pilate goes back into his headquarters and says to Jesus, Where are you from? Right? Where are you from? Jesus has previously said, I'm from above, I'm not from below, I'm from another kingdom. He's, Pilate's doing a, 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 a rewind on this. Okay, tell me again where you're from. But Jesus did not answer him that time. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me now? Do you not realize who you're talking to? I have the authority I have authority over you, and I have the authority to let you go free or to crucify you. 
Man, verse 11 is so, is so good, so rich. Look at verse 11. Jesus answered him. He did speak, and he answered him. He said, you, you don't have authority over me. You're not in charge of me. Jesus said, you, you don't have any authority over me unless God the Father gives it to you. You don't have anything. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Probably referring to Caiaphas and the, high, you know, the whole high priestly gathering, the, the Jewish leaders. More so even than Judas. You don't, you don't, you don't have authority. Here's, here's what I'm saying the clue is. You don't have authority over me. God's doing something right now. What's God doing? God is doing something right now in the midst of the humiliation of Jesus Christ that is tied directly to the cross. I think that's the clue. God is at work. Behind Pilate's authority or power, Jesus sees the hand of God. Behind the suffering and humiliation, Jesus sees the hand of God. No matter how vile the secondary causes might be, the alternative is unthinkable for Jesus. God's not playing some kind of chess match with the Roman governor. God is in charge, and he's doing something in the midst of Jesus' suffering. Note to self, next time you're experiencing shame and humiliation, God is doing something. God is in charge, and he wants you to find your experience in connection to Christ and who he is and what he did on your behalf. God is doing something amazing and mysterious through the cross. He's going to reverse the curse of shame and sin. That's exactly what he's doing. What Jesus is referring to here in verses 10 and 11 is he's, kinda, he's, kinda, he's, giving, us a, he's giving us a clue. God is doing something. God's doing something amazing in the, moments of my hum, in the moment of my humiliation. God is doing something amazing. And what he's going to do is he's going to make Jesus the Savior of the world. And Jesus is going to reverse the curse. And Jesus is going to cover your shame. Listen to Isaiah 53. It's a familiar passage. It's the passage about the suffering servant. It's the passage about the Messiah. It's the promise, it's the promise of Jesus in Isaiah, in Isaiah for us. Isaiah the prophet writes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was the kind of man from whom men would hide their faces, shamed, embarrassed. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was chastisement, chastisement that brought us peace wholeness, life, shalom. So how does it work? How does it work that Jesus overcomes shame and humiliation on the cross? This is a, this is a really like mind-blowing thought, but listen to this. Jesus is going to do something to shame at the cross that's going to free us from it. If you want to look at it, it's in Hebrews 12 and verse 2. This is probably the most explicit place 
that I could find in the Bible that really kind of explains what happened in relation to the humiliation and shame of Jesus on the cross. You probably know the verse. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Listen to this. Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. That's an interesting rendering. The ESV has it, despising the shame. Other translations will have a different word uh, there. Uh, I, I want to go with something like this. This is just me paraphrasing what I think is an accurate understanding of the text. He scorned shame. He shamed shame. He put shame in its rightful place on the cross. That's what Jesus did. He came to reverse the curse of shame so that shame is overcome at the cross because God turns it back on itself. God makes the supreme act of shame, listen to this, God makes the supreme act of shame, the humiliation of Jesus, the innocent one. God makes the supreme act of shame, the very operation that will cover all shame. That's how good overcomes evil. It is through shame that Jesus is able to turn shame back on itself. That is, he lets it all come to him. It's like he lets it, it's like he lets it all come to him. He's in this, uh, just picture he's a, an amazing um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter. Okay, go with me here for a minute. He's an, like the son of God's an amazing Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter and shame's just coming at him from every direction and he keeps just turning it back on itself and back on itself until he puts it in this death armbar kind of thing and he just kills it. He just keeps turning shame, but he's got to receive the shame in order to turn it back on itself and kill it. This is why we say he, this is, this is the same idea that we often talk about, he, he killed death and overcame death. He killed evil in the same way and overcame evil. He did the same thing with your shame. He lets the shame come to him. It's poured out on him. And in one amazing death blow, Jesus says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, give, I'm gonna give myself in utter humiliation and die in place of everyone who's ever experienced shame, who wants to believe and trust and be healed, by his wounds, we are healed. And the resurrection, by the way, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and we do, it's the confirmation that he won, that he turned shame back on itself, who for the joy that was set before him Endured the cross, shaming shame, despising shame, scorning shame, putting it in its rightful place, and then he rose and sits down at the right hand of the Father. It's a beautiful summary of what he does on the cross, Hebrews 12, 2. So, God's always overcoming evil with good. And he, in this amazing humiliation on our behalf, shows us what to do with shame. So here's what you should do to shame. You, here's what you should do with your shame. You should bring your shame somewhere. Where should you bring it? You should bring it to the cross. You should bring your shame to the cross of Jesus. 
You need to take your shame somewhere. Don't just take it to a therapist. Therapists are important, they're good, they help us in many ways, but don't just take it there. You need to take it to a place where, where, where you can see shame exchanged for covering, shame exchanged for grace, shame exchanged, exchanged for the mercy of Jesus. Once Jesus removes your shame, this is what's so amazing about the gospel. Okay, this is the thing you've been looking for. Listen, this is what you've been looking for. Once Jesus removes your shame, you're gonna have a warehouse of grace and mercy to give to other people, and you'll start to be able to help cover their shame. Jesus covered your shame, and then you can start to help other people cover their shame, and that's what we learn about, like, that's, I wanna talk to you about that for a minute. We, we can learn you can learn to cover the shame of other people. That's what Christians are. Christians are people who once they've discovered the removal of their shame, follow Christ by covering other people's shame. In fact, if a Christian is anything, she is a person who's resourced by grace, so much so that it's no longer just tactfulness in a conversation, it's grace she's covering. If a Christian is anything, he is someone who's learning to cover the shame of others. Why, like, why wouldn't we consider this one of the ways we follow Jesus? Why, why would we not consider this one of the ways we follow Jesus? We want to follow Jesus. How do we follow Jesus? We follow him into the covering of other people's shame. I love Genesis 9. This is probably my favorite biblical image. In Genesis 9, you meet... Uh, a drunken Noah who's drunk and naked and exposed in his tent. So he learned to plow and he learned to farm and he raised crops and wine and the, the text moves from his uh, discovery of horticulture and agriculture to drunkenness in like a sentence. But then it says he was drunk and he was naked and you can also read there and shamed or ashamed. But he's, he's out of it. He's, he doesn't really even know what's happening. But his son, Ham, finds him. And the text gives some indication that it seems like Ham, his son, is enjoying his father's failure. He's enjoying his father's nakedness. And then he goes and tells Shem and Japheth, the other two brothers. Shem and Japheth don't want to shame their father. So they take some kind of covering or blanket, and you remember this from Genesis 9, they back in. They back in purposefully, symbolically, and so physically also, they're not, you know, they don't, they don't participate in the shaming. They, t they back in and they, and they cover their father. They cover him. They cover his shame and his nakedness. It's a beautiful story. When Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, allowed himself to be utterly humiliated on your behalf, do you know what he was doing? He was backing in to cover your sin and shame and nakedness, and you and I have sin and shame and nakedness, and he needs to cover it. That's what he did. Amazingly, Jesus, as he stretches out his arms on the cross, he's backing in to cover your nakedness and your shame. What a beautiful image. Man, why wouldn't we as Christians learn to give more 
covering and less exposure. We just love to expose each other. We love to point each other out. We love, I mean, you see it on social media. You see it in conversations. We just love to, we delight in sin and shame. Jesus does not delight in sin and shame. He doesn't delight in it at all. In fact, he's willing to be humiliated and die and give up his life for it. We shouldn't delight in that. You and I can learn. Man, what a beautiful thing it would be, like so many people in this room, if we discovered how to cover the shame of another person, I'm guessing our neighborhoods would begin. I'm guessing our families, I'm guessing our workplaces would begin to sense it. And they'd say, this, this is different. This is different. What, what would motivate somebody to cover? No, but that was wrong. It needs to be pointed out. No, well, justice will be served. Let's cover this in a healthy, beautiful way with grace. Uh, one of my favorite stories is from an old, uh, older pastor who is a psychologist and a humorist and, and from Texas. His name's Charles Lowry. Some of you may, may know or heard of Charles Lowry. Funny guy. Um, really funny. Not Mark Lowry. I don't think he's related to Mark Lowry. Uh, he's funny, too. But Charles Lowry uh, is who I'm talking about. He tells a story about being in a Taco Bell once. And at lunch, this little boy spilled his drink. I don't think I've shared this with you all. This little boy spills his drink, and his dad just goes off. Just, what are you doing? I can't take you anywhere. You just, uh, just and there's just explosion in the middle of the busy Taco Bell. Everybody's getting this moment right here. This dad just railing on his son, and, and Charles is just sitting a table or two away, and so he just kind of loosens the lid of his big, large Coke and just sends it full send right into the middle of the room. Coke goes everywhere, and... The center of gravity shifts away from that boy to this moment. And Charles Lowry doesn't say anything to him, but he looks back and makes eye contact with the boy. So as if to say, I got something for you right now that your dad does not have for you. And he covers with high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> he covers the shame of a little boy. Now, don't you want to live more like that than the dad? So we've got to learn how to follow Jesus in the covering of other people. This does not mean, because some of you already, you're putting on your hat and you're like getting serious about it. Hey, somebody needs to bring this to justice. Somebody needs to make this public. Somebody needs to, that's not your job right now. Don't short-circuit the amazing power of grace in the name of justice. That's not right. Jesus didn't. Jesus brings justice through grace. And he brings justice through covering. We can and should, and God help us. So I'm going to pray for us this morning. Lord, would you please, will you pray with me? We're going to pray and ask God to help us. Lord, would you please... Teach me things that I've never before known about how to cover the shame of someone else. 
Lord, we as a people this morning repent, we turn, we, we want to we turn away from enjoying pointing out the wrongs of others. We want to we turn away from being quick to speak and quick to judge. We want to turn toward Jesus, who amazingly was humiliated for us and who shamed shame and put it right back in its place so we, we can be free. Oh God, we want to be free from shame and suffering like that. Teach us. Teach us how to discover grace and discover the power of the cross by, by giving away what Christ has given to us. And Lord, we confess we are, we are rookies. We do, we're rookies. We do not know how to do this, but we want to. By your Spirit, remove and wash away self-righteousness legalism, judgmentalism, and warm us, warm us to the grace of Christ and the cross of Jesus as we, as we keep thinking about his passion and his suffering, and remind us that, that you are in charge, you have power and authority over this, that you, you are doing something right now, that the mighty hand of God is doing something. And you're making it effective through the cross. We pray that you'd help us to see it, give us eyes to see, help us to turn away from shame and shaming others, and help us to embrace the cross of Christ, its power, and its mercy. We pray these things so Jesus would be glorified. Amen.